News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you can complain about where we are here in BC in terms of our COVID-19 regulations, but it's nothing compared to what's going on in other provinces. Take a look at Quebec. Quebec is introducing the first curfew in the country, all in an effort to limit the spread of the virus. So starting tomorrow, residents of that province have to remain indoors from 8 p.m. until 5 a.m. And that is going to last for one month, 30 days. The Quebec National Assembly reporter for Global News is Raquel Fletcher, who joins us now to talk more about this. Raquel, thank you for being here. Hi, guys. Good morning. Now, how is this going over, Raquel? How are people taking this? Uh, I think there's a a mixed reaction here in the province. There are obviously people who are very concerned about uh, the rapid spread of the virus, but more importantly, the uh, increasing hospitalizations. Every day we see the number of people admitted to ICU going up, uh, much like we saw during the first wave. So uh, there was a lot of pressure, particularly from the medical community, for the government to bring in stricter measures, so a stricter lockdown, including a curfew. Now, on the other hand, obviously, this infringes on civil liberties, and people are already, um, you know, experiencing what we're calling COVID fatigue, and they, they, you know, were hoping, I think, uh, like everyone across the country, that 2021 would end up being a little bit different, or we could, uh, you know, all of a sudden have uh, maybe some some loosening up of the of the restrictions now that we have a vaccine and and that's obviously not the case it's very much the opposite so right mixed reaction yeah i can imagine okay so what other kind of restrictions are in place in quebec right now uh what about restaurants and businesses and who's allowed to go to work So uh, we already had what we can refer to as a partial lockdown in place over the Christmas break. So that began about a week before Christmas. And as of Christmas Day, any uh, deemed non-essential businesses, uh, which obviously includes restaurants, bars, uh, boutiques, etc., had to close their doors. Now, with this new... um, Uh, I guess, fuller lockdown, if you will. They are allowed to provide curbside pickup. Restaurants uh, were already allowed to deliver. So a a similar um, exception is made for uh, retailers now that uh, they can, I guess, sell online. Obviously, you know, that sales are, for a lot of people, are are down. So it's not great economically. Uh, As for people going to work, um, only uh, essential service workers will be allowed to go to and from work. And what the government is telling us is that if you are an essential worker, uh, you know, if you work in manufacturing or you're a nurse or, you know, you need to go to the hospital or whatever, you should have uh, a letter from your employer because if you get stopped by the police, the police are going to ask you, hey, why are you breaking curfew? And you'll need to be able to provide some proof that you're going where you say you're going. Right. Oh, boy, it sounds like uh, quite the lockdown already there. What is the situation in the long-term care homes, Raquel? I know Quebec struggled with getting that under control early on. Um, yeah, they, I mean, we're not seeing what we saw during the first wave, of course, but there are obviously a lot of outbreaks. And the reason for this curfew actually is, uh, they say, uh 
based on studies that have been done in other places, France, for instance, uh, that when a curfew was brought in place there, it helped protect people who were at 60, 65 and older. Uh, Now, the case with the long-term care homes is a a bit different because obviously you have workers coming in and out, um, which contributed to the spread during the first wave. And we're still seeing that again now uh, to a bit of a lesser extent, but it is still very, very concerning. All right, Raquel, thank you so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you. Have a good morning. You too. That's Raquel Fletcher, the Global News National Assembly reporter in Quebec, talking about the new curfew going into place there. So if you violate that curfew, if police fine you for that, uh, you could be fined up to $6,000. They can also hand out a $500 fine to young people 14 years and older. So there's a lot of leeway here for police to fine. But you know, I know we complain about things in BC, but let me just run through a list of what is closed in the province of Quebec right now. Grocery stores required to close at 7.30. Ski resorts, Closed, no night skiing going on there. So they're closed for night skiing. Uh, Non-essential businesses and offices, staff are required to work from home. All beauty salons, closed. Restaurant dining areas, so in restaurant dining, closed. Can't do that. Uh, Saunas, spas, all closed. Uh, Drop-in daycare, closed. Libraries, closed. Uh, All indoor sports activities, closed. Uh, There's a lot of stuff there that is closed right now that we here in BC are still doing and going to. So a very different situation. Now they're undergoing a 30-day curfew situation in Quebec starting tomorrow. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, fallout from that new national security law in Hong Kong is continuing this week with large-scale arrests of individuals that the government in Hong Kong deems to be a threat to the Chinese government. To talk more about this now, we're joined by Ayman Lau, who's an advisor with Alliance Canada Hong Kong. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What has been going on this week? So it's been just a mass arrest that has rounded up every last pro-democracy figure who remains in Hong Kong. Uh, 53 activists, organizers um, have been arrested and Truly, this signifies that there are no opposition voices left in Hong Kong who has not been arrested, charged or jailed. And I I just want to make it also clear that those arrested were not necessarily key pro-democracy figures or even extremely vocal advocates in uh, the Hong Kong uh, political system. These people were moderates. They came from all political stripes. Um, one notable case that stood out for me was Jeffrey Andrews, who was the first ethnic uh, minority to run. Um, he came in dead last in these unofficial primaries that were meant to choose opposition candidates. Dead last. And he still represented a threat to the Hong Kong government. What did, do we know what the process is like for when somebody is arrested? Like what happens to them? You know, that's that's one of the things that it's a bit difficult to ascertain, really. Um, it's There's no due process. And for a few of them, they're getting uh, some bail. Uh, they're getting bails to leave. But really, we don't know. And <clears throat> again, the rest of the process is up in the air as well. We're not too sure what kind of uh, uh, imprisonment they will face. That's some scary stuff there, though. Like, this has been happening for months now. Does it seem to you that it's now without impunity? They're not worried about how this looks to the rest of the world? 
Yeah, I think that one of the things that this signifies is that uh, the Chinese regime and the Hong Kong government are certainly emboldened to do whatever they want. It's a sign of another continuing crackdown and, again, demonstrates that Beijing, uh, Beijing's intention to eradicate any form of democratic participation. Um, I think our, the international community has been particularly weak in uh, addressing this. And, of course, they have taken the inaction as a sig- signal to continue on. Is it also a time when other countries have a lot on their plate, too, right? And perhaps they're counting on that. Absolutely. I, I do think it is... Um, it was intentional that they had chosen that day to conduct a crackdown because certainly we have been distracted and rightfully so with what's been happening to the south of us. Okay, so what happens next then? I mean, is this, is this the best that we can do is kind of raise awareness about this? Is there anything that can be done for the people who are arrested? Again, we've been advocating from the start sanctions, a harder, stronger, more principled approach to China. And I think the pandemic has really unmasked that the Chinese regime is not our friend and we need to start acting accordingly so. Um, And really, honestly, another statement is meaningless. There's been no consequences for these violations and there needs to be some. This cannot, I think one of the big pressing concerns um, as we move forward is that are we legitimizing a a regime, an authoritarian regime, to be frank, to continue to do what they do. Do you think anything will change once, you know, COVID-19 numbers improve, perhaps, in North America, in Europe? I, I hope so. I hope we start to, I hope we start to recalibrate, um, specifically around our China policy and whatnot. Um, but again, it feels like a very long way off until that's going to be happening. And what has this done then to the democracy movement in Hong Kong? Is it, I guess the goal is to make people fearful. Is it working? Well, as of right now, it's uh, one thing I will say is I think democracy was always a sham in Hong Kong. And now there's just a public face to it. Um, it certainly has increased and uh, ramped up the white, the chill that's feeling mm-hmm. that's been felt within Hong Kong. Um, and people, people are, people are afraid because now it's demonstrated that this does not just target a small minority of Hong Kong citizens as, um, as the Hong Kong government has repeatedly asserted. It does target anyone and everyone who even has an ounce of opposition in their body frankly. Right. You just said that you felt that it was always a sham. What do you mean? Well, democracy in Hong Kong, you know, we, not to get into too much of the specifics, but there, there was always a pro-Beijing bent within the political system. And it was designed, frankly, that way since, uh, since we returned back to China. And these led up to a number of protests over the years because there was seen as, um, legislations that were going to be passed through that were pro that were favorable to the Chinese regime. And it's because the system and what was were and this came up in the 2019 protests was that it's the system is rigged to be favorable to the Chinese regime. There's right. mechanisms to do so. And people in Hong Kong never felt like their voices were truly heard and they demanded for true universal suffrage. We got half measures of it. So when people hear stories like this, and it's frustrating, right? Because you think, well, what can we do? How could we help? 
again, there are some actionable things that we can do. For example, sanctions. We, I mean, a lot of people have been yelling about Magnitsky sanctions from the beginning. Um, we also need to start to look into the ways that we allow economic co- coercion to happen because we can't, frankly. I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's a good thing. And as well as um, learning ways to demonstrate that we can curb this behavior. Um, again, you know, this is, it's a lot more complex than just here's a policy thing that it's going to, like A plus B equals right. C. We're going to need to think of innovative and new creative ways, but that requires, the thing that's been the most frustrating is that there seems to be a lack of willingness to be consistent from, from right. the government. Um, and I will commend the government for suspending the extradition treaty and suspending military exports and then uh, introducing those immigration measures that were a good start. Um, but again, that we can't be going on this roller coaster of, oh, it seems like we're going to take a stronger approach to China. And then all of a sudden we don't hear anything for months right? and we get statements after statements. Um, and uh, we, we certainly need to, have a hard look at ourselves. Ayman, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. Ayman Lau, who's advisor with Alliance Canada Hong Kong, talking about what's been going on in Hong Kong, especially this week where there's more fallout from that national security law that was brought into place. They've had large-scale arrests of individuals that the Chinese government deems a threat and so it, things are changing there rapidly. But, you know, look at the rest of the world. They're so busy right now that there's even more of this going on in China that we are, that essentially governments are either unable at this point or unwilling to respond to. This is Mornings with Simi. We have just been through an intense election and emotions are high, but now tempers must be cooled and calm restored. Who was that person? Well, apparently it was U.S. President Donald Trump with a significant change in tone that coming late yesterday in a video that was released from the White House. But all of that violence that we saw happen on Wednesday has have now has American lawmakers debating whether they should try once again to remove Donald Trump from office right away, even though there's now less than two weeks to go uh, before the inauguration of the new administration, the Biden administration. Breaking it all down for us this morning uh, is CBS political analyst Leonard Steinhorn. Leonard, thank you for being with us. Happy to be here. Thanks. Now, where are things at politically at this point? Is there still that appetite? Like, I know there was a lot of anger on Wednesday, a lot of reaction to this, but what's, what's going on now? Well, look, there's a deep concern among Democrats in particular, but even some Republicans that the president crossed the line, did something wholly inappropriate, unpresidential, basically urging his followers to storm the Capitol, sort of giving them nourishment and fuel to do this. Uh, And many Democrats and even a couple Republicans believe that this is impeachable. Now, with 12 days to go, is that realistic? You can get something through the House fairly quickly, and all it takes is a majority vote. Then you would have to go to the Senate for a trial. Is that realistic? 
Probably not. Uh, it, they'll probably try to wait it out. The Republicans will not go along with this. So even if they do impeach him, he would not be convicted and removed from office. So the next thing is, will uh, you know, they the, the talk about the 25th Amendment, which basically has the vice president and a majority of the cabinet. And again, that's a question because we don't know if that includes acting secretaries who would take the place of those secretaries who have now resigned. Um, then they could basically put forth uh, a, a, a process to remove President Trump from office temporarily and install Mike Pence. And presumably that temporarily would mean till January 20th. I don't think there's an appetite for that, particularly by Mike Pence, the vice president, and President Trump would challenge it. It would then have to go to Congress for two-thirds approval. So, again, unlikely. The Wall Street Journal, which is a very, very conservative editorial page, um, has called for President Trump to resign, almost the way Richard Nixon did. Um, Is he likely to do that? No. So will the president still be in office through noon, January 20th? I would say yes. But you just mentioned something there that I thought was remarkable yesterday, that the Wall Street Journal would do that. That is, that's essentially Rupert Murdoch saying that. Yes, Rupert Murdoch. And this is a deeply conservative editorial page. Um, So, look, there is so much discontent, so much concern, except for the diehards who continue to believe that the president did no wrong and some of the Fox News and the Newsmax and all of these other right wing places are trying to suggest that it was Antifa. It wasn't Antifa. It was the president's diehard supporters who he uh, invited to Washington and said it's going to be wild uh, and then gave a speech charging them up. And they then stormed the Capitol. So, look, you're going to have a lot of legal consequences down the line. Some people are even asking whether the president himself could be prosecuted for inciting violence. And apparently uh, the U.S. attorney's office is looking into that. Whether that happens again, we don't know because we're still in the heat of the moment. The bottom line is this in 12 days. There will be a new administration. Joe Biden will become president. Donald Trump has discredited himself with all but his most diehard supporters, and he will limp away from the White House and not have anything close to the political power that many people thought he would have even uh, the day after Election Day. Leonard, is there a realization of that, though? Because I felt like there must have been with that video that he put out yesterday. Well, there's some uh, talk in town that uh, it was the White House counsel that said, you better do this to protect yourself legally. Um, So it's not as if he put any heart and soul. He didn't even acknowledge Joe Biden is the winner. Uh, He just said a new administration will be taking power and we need a peaceful transfer of power. Um, I think, uh, you know, whether it was because he feared legal consequences or he was forced to accept the reality by aides pushing him, which he really didn't want to do, um, he had to put this forth to try and calm the waters and get through this moment. But the bottom line is this. There's no great recognition psychologically or emotionally on his part that he lost this election. And his, you know, diehard supporters are going to stick with him and believe Mm -hmm. um, that he was truly elected, that that Joe Biden was, was elected fraudulently. You have large numbers of Republicans in every poll saying that this election was corrupt, that Joe Biden didn't really win, that he stole the election. So, you know, President Trump probably believed that in his heart of hearts, but he had to put this forth because people were abandoning him. Even his supporters were jumping ship. 
secretaries and the cabinet were, were resigning, yeah. and he had to do something to stanch the bleeding. All right. Leonard, thank you so much for your time this morning. Hey. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. Leonard Steinhorn, CBS political analyst. They're going through a process right now in the United States that we went through here on a much smaller level, of course, post-Stanley Cup riots of 2011, where people's pictures are being splashed all over the place, and the people who were in the Capitol participating in the rioting, taking stuff, are now essentially being called on the carpet for it, losing their jobs, um, having to shut down their social media, all that kind of stuff. That's the process, and it's, um, it's, a, it's a fascinating one to watch unfold. This is Mornings with Simi. We now know that the provincial health restrictions that we have been under for more than a month now are going to be extended until at least February the 5th. And we found that out just before they were set to expire. So what does this mean for businesses out there? It is a very challenging time. Joining us now is Anita Hubberman, Surrey Board of Trade CEO. Anita, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. Well, you sound very chipper, given the challenges right now that I think a lot of businesses are going through. I think, how are, how are they doing? What are you hearing? Well, we have a lot of work to do in uh, 2021, and we're hearing many businesses and industries that are asked to shut down, uh, even temporarily, and, uh, are, you know, our small and medium-sized enterprises. You know, the hardest hit, of course, are restaurants, arts and culture industries, hotels, airlines now, and they just can't apply for government programs. And, uh, uh, you know, some don't really, uh, they're, they're not uh, able to get approved immediately. Uh, it takes time for funds to be approved. Um, and, and, you know, there are difficult decisions that businesses need to make now. And uh, even our head office, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, you know, with these last-minute uh, health and safety protocols that are put in place even on New Year's Eve, uh, that that's really damaging to the bottom line of businesses. And unfortunately, restaurants, uh, you know, are going to have to make some difficult decisions. What kind of difficult? Do you think now it's either temporarily close or close? Temporarily closed or, or closed, laying off staff. Um, or, or just, uh, just closing completely. You know, what makes financial sense? I mean, uh, we know that there is going to be, uh, a vaccination rollout eventually amongst, uh, all British Columbians that want to take the vaccine. Uh, but we, we also need a coherent strategy that's open, transparent, uh, where businesses can also plan ahead. Uh, you know, they need to be part of the conversation with these health and safety protocols calls that are put in place. And how do we make that happen? Then? Has that not been happening? Uh, to some extent, uh, it has, and to some extent, it hasn't. And uh, I mean, we saw, for example, most recently on New Year's Eve, uh, you know, some people say it was only a, a two-hour uh, closure uh, from eight uh, from ten to eight p.m. But um, you know, these are are businesses that rely on sales on New Year's Eve. And uh, they need to have, they need to be part of the conversation for a well-designed, well-organized, well-communicated plan. And restaurants were not part of that conversation. What kind of impact has this had on on local businesses? And I I know a lot of them have been helped by the federal government policies, um, but it it must be getting to the point where a lot of business people are wondering, like, can I do this much longer? Well, in Surrey, for example, we've been able to recover, um, 
you know, many jobs in our November labor market intelligence report. We indicated uh, that we have a 12,000 deficit uh, of jobs, uh, you know, from when the pandemic started in March. So some businesses are faring even better than before the pandemic, but some are not. And, uh, you know, the, the whole stress of making these decisions on an yeah. ongoing basis uh, is, uh, is not, you know, uh, not conducive uh, for long-term sustainability for a business. What advice do you have? Like, what, would you, what message do you want to give, then, the provincial government? Well, it's not only the provincial government. It's all levels of government, local, provincial, and federal. Uh, where they all need to work together as partners uh, to ensure that uh, we have widespread rapid testing and contact tracing, uh, that there is open, transparent communication, that there's tailored support immediately for the hardest hit, especially as a result of health and safety protocols, and to ensure that there's a well-designed, well-organized plan for vaccine administration. And do you feel some of that is still lacking? I'm certainly on the vaccine front. I think a lot of people feel that. Yeah, we're still waiting uh, for, you know, an efficient, uh, well-communicated plan for the vaccine. Uh, but, uh, you know, some things have been good and, and, uh, and some things uh, have uh, experienced a lot of gaps and a lot of pain for business and a lot of job losses, especially for our youth uh, that rely on, on jobs like restaurants. Uh, to get their foot in the door on their way to uh, their their career. Right. So, I mean, we're heading into a second year of this. That almost seems too much to believe, doesn't it? Well, what I'm hearing also is uh, perhaps the pandemic won't officially be declared over until 2022. So, uh, you know, this is another year of... uh, you know, of being heroes, so to speak, of, uh, you know, ensuring we have health and safety protocols, uh, you know, to as employers to ensure we're taking care of our staff uh, in various ways that we're not typically used to. So true. Uh, Anita, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Take care. You too. That's Anita Haberman, Surrey Board of Trade CEO, uh, talking about the, how businesses are being impacted in Surrey in particular with these new provincial health restrictions that are being now extended until February the 5th. Uh, but I can't even imagine for business people right now, the decisions on a daily basis, how much longer can you do this? Uh, you know, is the support system there? And yet, on the one hand, you know, we're, it's so tough. Yet you look at what ha- what's happening elsewhere in Ontario. They're about to have a press conference with their premier, Doug Ford. Uh, they are in dire straits when it comes to case numbers. Quebec, the same, instituting a, a province-wide curfew in Quebec starting tomorrow. Things that we you know, aren't even close to seeing here in BC, thank goodness. Uh, but still, very frustrating situation for businesses out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Just a quick update on those Ontario COVID-19 numbers. They were just released moments ago. They smashed their daily record for infections of COVID-19. They are reporting 4,249 daily cases. Um, More to come from Premier Doug Ford's press conference on that. Right now, though, we're going to talk about a good news story. We like those. We need those these days. This is about a pod of orcas that have actually been absent for decades in the area around Fife Sound, and they have now returned. For more on this, we're joined now by Alexander Morton, biologist who's been studying orcas since way back in 1984. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Good morning. Uh, tell me about the area around Five Sound. Why did the orcas disappear from there? Well, I went there in 1984. I actually followed them in there. Um, I came to Canada to study that family because one of them is in captivity in Los Angeles. And so I wanted to come here to follow the whales that spoke the same language. And um, they used the Broughton Archipelago in the winter as their exclusive hunting ground. These are the A5s. But then a salmon farm in the Birdwood Islands put an acoustic harassment device on the farm to try to keep seals away. This is a sound that is 198 decibels. It's the sound of a, a jet engine at takeoff. It's that loud. And for whales who have very delicate hearing and actually see with sound, it turns out that they just could not risk their hearing. It would be like us walking into a room with needles coming towards our eyes. They they just could not come back. And so, of course, I didn't know that they were leaving, that I was seeing them for the last time in 1995. But I had an underwater microphone into my house and listened 24-7 and weeks, and months, and then years went by when I didn't see or hear them. And there's, there's quite a whale network in this area. So, you know, because we can identify all the whales, uh, lots of information comes in about where they are on the north coast and down in the Strait of Georgia and all over. And then there's Orca Lab in Johnson Straits with a hydrophone. So we knew the whales were still alive, but they just were not going in. And so... Last year, that salmon farm in the Birdwood Islands was removed uh, by the First Nations under agreement with the province and the federal government, and the whales came back. Like that quickly? Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning, the perception that they have. And whales are very deliberate animals. They do not move around randomly. They're also very cautious. And so, um, yeah, they entered Fife Sound, which was their traditional, you know, migration route. Right. I mean, they did it the way they always did it. They came in the winter. They came alone, which they always did. In the winter, the orca break down into the smallest units of their families, which is basically mom and the kids. And um, they were still in the area yesterday. So apparently they're finding something to eat, which is thrilling to me. Wow. So that also just goes to show you how responsive, right, that, that they can be to nature, that it takes something very little like that to get them to respond to it. Well, it was pretty huge, but absolutely. And I mean, someone could argue that's not why they came back. They might be right. However, it's been a long time and uh, and that farm was removed and they've come back. And so, you know, the return of whales is an indication that this part of the coast is healing. That means not only jobs, but, you know, it also means an environment that will protect our children. Um, they're a bellwether of enormous significance. So what next then? So this, that's a good news area. Where do you move to next? What else would you like to see? <laughs> well, the nations are taking more farms out of that area every year. And uh, because of that, um, the young salmon won't be infected with sea lice. And uh, so last year, last spring was the first year where I was able to look at the young salmon that were not migrating past salmon farms in that area. And they looked so beautiful. You know, they didn't have lice all over them. And now the Minister of Fisheries has made an extraordinary decision 
to respect First Nations also in the Discovery Islands and remove the salmon farms there. Now, that is the migration route for the mighty Fraser River, those sockeye that have been vanishing, you know, disastrously every year. So I'm going to be down there this spring to look at those fish as well and see uh, if removal of the farms took away the lice as well there. Well, I guess we'll be talking to you again. Alexandra, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. That's Alexandra Morton. She's a biologist, very well known. She began studying orcas back in 1984, and she's very heartened by the news that orcas have returned to Fife Sound um, after uh, some the aquaculture industry was removed from that area. So yeah, with, given the developments, and we've talked about them too, the Discovery Island area that Alexandra was just talking about, we'll be following along with that. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking about jobs this morning, uh, lots of concerns about that. United States jobs numbers were terrible. They lost more jobs when they were expecting to gain about 50,000 of them. Here at home, you know, we're waiting for new jobs numbers, but the news isn't good either. Take a look at WestJet this morning. The, uh, you know, Western Canadian-based airline is slashing jobs, uh, more than a 1,000 of them. Uh, They're cutting hundreds of flights because they just, you know, at least for the next couple of months, they said, because they don't see conditions change anytime soon. So a lot of people out there might be rethinking their careers. That actually happens quite often when there is political and social upheaval. It can create that environment where people think, well, maybe it's time I did this instead. And there's many companies out there that have been able to successfully pivot to fill the needs that were created by the pandemic. People selling masks that they made at home. Companies suddenly realizing, hey, you know what? We manufacture plexiglass. Let's make some of these barriers. They've been so busy. They've been struggling to keep up with demand. So is that the kind of new world that we find ourselves in? Simon Fraser University Public Policy Professor Andrew Petter thinks that, well, Canada could position itself to capitalize on all of that. He joins us now this morning to talk more about it. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Uh, it's great to be here, Simi. Thank you. So are you viewing this as a time of opportunity for some companies? Yeah, I mean, I think we obviously face huge challenges of great concern, not only with the pandemic, but looking forward to economic recovery. There's been a lot of dislocation for jobs. A lot of uh, companies are suffering. Uh, huge inequalities have been exposed. But at the same time, what's really extraordinary to me as a as a participant in and more recently an observer of BC politics is a spirit of togetherness and of common interest that has emerged on the part of many around the province. There was an extraordinary letter from seven leaders of the business communities across BC calling for a common strategy, a common approach to deal not only with economic renewal, but with inequality and with mental health, with uh, Indigenous reconciliation. And I noticed that the government, when it was re-elected, the Premier spoke about the need to listen to ideas that came from all quarters. And very often, out of adversity, uh, you think of the Second World War, there is an impulse for people who haven't worked together well in the past to work together in the future. And BC has been beset by division and polarization that has really held us back. And what I'm really urging is that we all look at the possibility of making a common commitment to a, a economic growth strategy that also seeks to address a lot of these social issues, as well as climate change, of course, which is a huge existential threat. Right. We keep thinking we're going to do that, though, don't we? And the virus kind of still has us in its clutches, though. So what kind of timeline are you looking at here? 
Well, I don't think we can afford to wait. I think we have to uh, look forward. Uh, the virus does have us in its clutches, and the virus is itself a reason for us to work more closely together, as is happening. I mean, I think British Columbians have, for the most part, really pulled together and shown as a community that we are able to work together across all sorts of uh, historic divisions and, 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 and areas. But I think what we now need to do is to start thinking ahead and harnessing that. I know the province has said that its next budget is going to focus on economic economic recovery, as well as on the pandemic. The business community is obviously hugely concerned about the economy, and a lot of the virus's impacts, uh, in addition to the, the very serious health impacts and, 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 the, and, and, and deaths that have occurred, are economic. They, they've exposed huge inequalities uh, in our workforce. Uh, people's jobs are at risk, or many have been lost. Companies are suffering. So I don't think we can afford to wait to address and start to plan for an economic renewal, which I think has huge potential. Potential, uh, if we do work together and don't allow polarization to uh, reassert itself as it has in the past in this province. So what do you think that economic renewal looks like, given that it's so hard to predict to what any work, even a workplace is going to look like when we're all said and done here? Well, I think one of BC's real strengths, Simi, is we've been a world leader. We don't sometimes don't recognize it in, in collaborative processes that use deliberative engagement. You think of the core land use process. You think of the uh, Citizens' Assembly on electoral reform. What I'm urging is that uh, government uh, initiate a process which brings the business community, uh, social interest groups, environmental groups, Indigenous uh, uh, First Nations together, and that we work together on a common strategy and uh, see if we can't put together a commitment that combines strong economic growth with uh, attaining goals that address these other social, environmental, and, uh, and reconciliation targets. Are there certain industries that you think we should target in particular? Well, I think BC benefits from two things. One is we continue to have a very strong natural uh, resource uh, uh, to draw upon, although I am very concerned about the situation of rural communities that uh, have been confronted with further dislocation because of the pandemic. But I think there are opportunities to add real value to that natural resource base and to help uh, particularly rural communities to gain additional economic strength uh, by applying innovation, not just to the innovation sector, so-called, but using our innovative strengths uh, right across the province. And their universities can play a huge role. BC has one of the strongest post-secondary sectors of any province in the country. We have incredible research strengths. And I think every economic strategy I've seen uh, that has been successful has harnessed the value of education and research. And I think we're going to need to do that for sure. Right. So what is your advice then to the provincial government at this point? What should they be looking ahead to? I think there's a unique opportunity right now to take up the business community and others on the spirit of collaboration that has emerged as a result of the pandemic and to say, let's work together and to create a deliberative process, a process where all groups are invited to come together, to share their ideas, to listen to their differences, but to identify common interests and develop an agenda together that can lead this province forward. And I think the province has a unique opportunity. The province can set the goals. Indeed, they already have in large part. And there's many issues, you know, Simi, which are seen sometimes as social issues, but are also economic. Child care is a great example. Investing in child care will enable many more people to go into the workforce and build the economy, particularly women. Uh, Addressing Aboriginal reconciliation can help produce huge economic benefit throughout the province. So I think it's a matter of putting aside historic differences and finding common ground and building for the future. I think the province has a unique opportunity to do that right now. 
I, I really don't want to see this moment lost because I think there's an opportunity as coming out of the Second World War. All the adversity of the Second World War propelled people to work together to, uh, to rebuild the economy at that time. And I think we have a chance to do the same here. Do you see similarities there? Because that was a, that was a huge turning point, right, for Canadian economic history. I see similarities in the sense that there are moments in history where an entire community or country is similarly affected and people suddenly see their common interests, they suddenly see that they are interconnected, they see the value of a government, as is the case here, we, we rely deeply on government to address the pandemic and, and are concerned when they don't do enough. Um, and as with the Second World War, of course, government uh, and the role that we played in the war was driven very much by government. So I think there's an opportunity here, as there was in following the Second World War, to work as a community, to work together in a way that we haven't in recent years, at least in this province, and to build a brighter future. Andre Petter, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. That unemployment rate has gone up and down and up and down this year like we have never seen before. And there's a year-end update now that has lots for us to kind of unpack and talk about. For instance, the Canadian economy just in the month of December actually lost 63,000 jobs. It's the first time uh, that the Canadian economy had lost jobs since April. Second wave hitting us very hard. So let's talk about the provincial aspect of this. Joining us now is the Provincial Minister for Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation, Ravi Kalon. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me, Sammy. Are you, are you worried about what you see happening economically, jobs-wise, in December? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a mixed bag. Uh, certainly, uh, you let off with the fact that we've lost 66,000 jobs across Canada. Uh, BC uh, was the only province to see uh, job gains. Uh, it was a small number, uh, 3,800 new jobs gained. Um, but still, uh, it's our eighth straight month of seeing some job numbers returning. So, uh, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. And we know that, uh, that you know, we want our uh, counterparts in Ontario and Quebec and other provinces to to see a strong recovery, but it's it's uh, the, the, there's a direct connection between uh, the uh, the numbers, the COVID numbers, and uh, and uh, and the economic uh, numbers as well. Okay, so now that we are in the second wave, then are you concerned about the next couple of months? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm always concerned. Uh, it's uh, you know we're watching this very closely, and uh, you know we're fortunate in BC. I think we've got one of the strongest uh, economic recovery support programs uh, from across the country. And so uh, although we've seen close to, I think we're about 99% of jobs that we lost uh, come back to pre-pandemic levels, uh, we know a lot of these businesses are relying on uh, the provincial and federal supports. And so uh, I'm uh, I'm both cautious about the gains we've made, but also I know that we've still got some challenging days ahead. Yeah, let's talk about tourism and hospitality, an industry that has been especially hard hit here in BC. Are there more supports coming? Well, we've, uh, you know, uh, in the last few months, been meeting with the sector and they made recommendations on uh, what supports they need and we were able to announce that right before the holidays. We got $345 million on the table. Uh, this is not loans. This is direct grants to support businesses that are available right now uh, for both tourism operators as well as restaurants and retail operators as well. And so we've continued to provide supports all the way through uh, and we've been really collaborative with uh, different sectors on what they need. 
Right. But I mean, it seems like BC's approach to this has been, you know, tell people what you'd like them to do and then hope that they do that. Is that enough, do you think, to keep the economy in this balance that we're in right now? Well, from the beginning, uh, the premier was clear that we knew that in order to have a strong economic recovery, we need a strong health foundation focus. And and that's what we've been doing all the way through. Uh, And so knock on wood. Uh, again, we're the only province that's seen job gains for eight months straight. We're the only province that's seen some job gains this month. Uh, but again, we know that uh, it's uh, closely tied with uh, the COVID numbers. We need people to continue to follow the rules and stay within their household and, uh, and support local businesses wherever they can. What do you see happening then for tourism and hospitality in the next like three to six months? Well, uh, it's, uh, you know, we're watching closely the vaccine rollouts. Uh, we're watching closely on what drugs get approved. Uh, certainly my, uh, my hope would be to see uh, tourism uh, within the province, certainly. But uh, again, it's a global pandemic. And, uh, you know, we may get people vaccinated, but our uh, colleagues in uh, down south or cousins down south or, uh, you know, tourists that are coming from all over the place may not. So we know it's going to be a challenging year for tourism. Um, but we're going to continue to monitor that and, and see how the vaccine uh, approvals and rollouts continue to happen. Right. So I know that a lot of ski resorts were hoping that, you know, the winter would be okay, even if they kept it local, local, which is, you know, that's challenging as well. Are there supports in place then for those ski resorts and those industries affected by all this? Well, again, uh, we've been putting uh, historic dollars on the table to support all our sectors. Uh, so, I mean, we, you know, we made uh, PSD uh, rebates available for anyone that was buying new equipment and machinery. We've, you know, put tax credits, $190 million tax credits in place for not only uh, bringing back employees, but hiring new employees. You know, there's rent subsidies, there's direct grants, there's loans. Uh, the amount of programs and dollars available to uh, folks in tourism and, and elsewhere is uh, unprecedented. Um, but it doesn't replace the fact that, you know, we're just not having in the international travelers that we're used to having. And so, uh, you know, we're trying to balance the ensuring the public is safe. I think that's the most important thing, but supporting our businesses to continue to operate at the same time. Well, listen, thank you very much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Vaccines, long-term care homes, extended restrictions, lots of topics to cover for us right now with the help of Health Minister Adrian Dix, who joins us. Good morning. Thank you for being back here. Hey, good morning, Simi. Uh, let's talk about vaccines first of all. I know there was the Premier's discussion yesterday with the Prime Minister. Is there any update on the supply, more of it coming to BC? Uh, essentially, we we have coming what we expected to have coming, which is by March 31st, enough to cover about 10% of BC's population. We hope that there will be more, but there is absolutely no commitment or guarantee or contract that suggests there'll be more. So that's what we're facing right now. And so um, uh, to date, as of yesterday, or two days ago now, uh, 41,064 doses administered. It'll be closer to 50,000 today. Uh, and that's basically uh, the vaccine we have is either in people's arms or on its way to people's arms now. The bigger challenge is when we get into February, when it's 40,000 doses a week will arrive, and we'll have to obviously ramp that up significantly. But right now we're focused on long-term care, on long-term care workers, on long-term care residents, and uh, we're making a lot of progress um, over the last number of weeks, and I really want to praise everyone involved. 
Are you concerned, though, about the reluctance potentially of some long-term care home staff to get the vaccine? There's a company which runs five facilities quoted in the Globe and Mail newspaper this morning saying they're getting about 50% of their staff saying no to the vaccine. I don't know who that company is or what the reference is. We've seen um, uh, less vaccine hesitancy uh, in this campaign than we normally would see. I think um, people are pretty committed and people who work in long-term care don't need to be told about how serious COVID-19 is. They they know it and they live it every day. And so um, there is always going to be some vaccine hesitancy in a society. We see this in all the vaccines. Last year, in 2019, I should say, we had a discussion of measles immunization. There's some people, a uh, small, very small percentage of people in that discussion who were vaccine hesitant or opposed, right? But in general, people are uh, wanting to take uh, the vaccine. I think that's good news, uh, uh, obviously, for ensuring that especially long-term care is safe, but lots of other people are safe as well. Right. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about uh, Little Mountain, the long-term care home where there have been so many problems there. One of the things that really alarmed me was hearing that what Dr. Bonnie Henry said yesterday is that some of the staff had come to work sick thinking they were going to work through it. Doesn't that alarm you when you hear that, that that message still isn't getting through? Well, I think the message is through, but I think what's happened is that the situation in November and December is way more serious, right? In Metro Vancouver and in parts of the interior now, uh, we have significant community transmission. So people understand this. I know it's, uh, it's the detail of it. But on Vancouver Island, where we have really the same care home sector that we have here, right? Um, we've, uh, and uh, on Vancouver Island, we've had no deaths in long-term care on the whole Vancouver Island, in the whole pandemic. And that's because there's relatively little community transmission. Care workers live in community. And so this can be a problem. People ask, well, how can it get into a care home? Uh, And usually unwittingly, sometimes people don't think they have COVID-19 and work. But it gets in, and that's why you need measures at the door, and you need to work with people, and you need to inform, and you need to have excellent PPE practices. But we have had, in the last month, as you know, very significant community transmission of COVID-19, hundreds of cases a day. And you can't isolate long-term care from that. You can do, you can try, and we have strict limits on visits, which are their own problem. But, but when you have this level of transmission, it's going to affect long-term care. That's why we've done the single-site order and added the staff. At Little Mountain, I would say this, that... 60 Vancouver Coastal Health staff people have gone in to help there, right? 60 of them. They've volunteered everything from vice presidents of Vancouver Coastal Health to carries work for Vancouver Health School. have gone into that facility in this difficult time. And um, it's enormously challenging at Little Mountain, but also at German Canadian, at Capilano Care Home, at Felburn, at New Vista, which has had outbreaks in the past, at Free Links and others in Vancouver. So what we're seeing now, which we didn't see in August and September, every outbreak is bigger because the vaccine is transmitting and people in long-term care are incredibly vulnerable to respiratory illness. And this is a vicious respiratory illness. How worried are you about the next little while? I mean, given the uptick and the message that we heard from you and Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday, are, how concerned are you about the post-Christmas bump? I was worried in August and I'm worried now. I mean, this is an important period because we're going to be able to immunize some of our population, 10% of it in the next three months. And that will be very positive, but it's not anything like herd immunity, right? That's what we're facing right now. So I'm worried right now because we will see the impact of the measures we took over Christmas in case counts in the next week or so. And so 
Uh, and this is a critical time when we will, I hope, very soon have fully immunized long-term care homes, uh, residents, long-term care, staff, long-term care. will have gone through all the care homes. We're close to having done that in Vancouver Coastal Health now. So this is a critical period, and we really need to dig in. That's why Dr. Henry extended the orders to February 5th. It's why when we're having people in our homes, um, it has to be only the people who live in those homes right now. So we can't have social gatherings, even dinner parties. We've seen the impact that that can have, that we have to continue to have the restrictions on community events and strict working protocols in workplaces. People have to dig in now. It's such an important month. And yes, I'm very concerned, obviously, about what happened over Christmas. And uh, But I'm also concerned about what's happening now. What we control, what's in our hands now, um, we need to go with. And overwhelmingly, British Columbians are following those orders. And that's why we get so mad when we see stories of people who aren't. Well, that's exa- yeah, exactly right. That is why we get so mad. What do you think about the curfew situation in Quebec? I mean, that's unlike anything we've seen in Canada. Yeah, they're, they're, um, it should be said that other parts of the world and other parts of Canada are doing significantly worse than we are. And and I like, I don't say that to diminish anything that's happening here. It is uh, such a serious situation. I can't underline that enough in BC. But in Quebec, they're facing transmission. And I've had um, um, many, many times the, the death rate that we've had both in long-term care and in society, right? So they're taking very, very significant measures to deal with that. And, uh, and, uh, those are those are measures that could be taken uh, here, but um, they have their own consequences, right? Whenever we take a measure, we have to measure the cost of that measure against the benefit. And uh, the measures, I think, that Dr. Bonnie Henry has put in place are very strict measures and ones we have to follow. And our view in BC is try not to change too much, to, to put in measures, to stick with them over a period of time so that people get used to them, and to try not to change to try and change as little as possible. Do you think those measures are working here, though? I think um, if you talk to people, overwhelmingly people are following the guidance and the measures. Yes, some people aren't, and we see that, and that has an effect on transmission. And so what I'd like to say to all those people, all the people who are following, we got to keep going, and don't let the those cases distract you from the things we have to do for our loved ones right now. And for those who haven't been following, I say it's not too late to join the fight. Come on board and follow right now because this month, January and February and March, during respiratory illness season, this is a crucial time for this province and its future and for the health of people in the province. It's time to dig in. Thank you for your time this morning. Anytime. Take care, Simi.